This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. love the arts. I love museums. I love going to museums. I love looking at the pictures and the artistic sculptures. And I love doing sort of the mini deep dives into, hey, where did these people come from? And who created this sculpture? And is it really a fertility goddess? Or is it just a woman minding her own business? These are some of the thoughts that go through my head when I'm at some of my favorite museums. And I'm one of those people who's always seeking out the museum exhibits that are specifically for my community. And by that, I mean the Blacks. <laughs> Y'all know you can't say that if you're not from the culture. But what I mean is art that is, at least in some way, shape, or form, connected to the African diasporic experience. And my questions often include, who gets to decide what art is going into a museum? Who gets to decide how it's featured? Is it is this display in the front of the museum where it's going to get prominence? Is it somewhere tucked away in the back or, you know, as a friend told me in the Louvre, in the basement? Like, where, where are the arts and the, the cultural uh, understandings of our community? And how did these products get there? Were they were they donated? Were they a part of colonizing efforts? These are all sort of the political thoughts that run through my mind when I'm out on a day just frolicking at the museum or trying to enjoy a lighthearted uh, day of art and exposure. Uh, my guest today is someone who's really an expert in all of these questions and more. Allison Glenn uh, is just a phenomenal member of the Curatorial Society. We're going to break down what that means in a minute. Uh, but her curatorial work focuses on the intersection of art and publics through public art, biennials, special projects, and major new commissions by leading contemporary artists. Uh, recognition for Ms. Glenn includes the 2022 Art News Deciders list and the 2021 Observer Arts Power 50 list. Now y'all, her bio's literally three pages long. I could go into this for forever, but I really think the most important thing is for us to hear from her directly. Allison Glenn, it is a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today and for helping us unpack some of these questions about art and who gets to benefit from them and how we get to engage with them. Thank you for being with us today. Laurie, thank you so much for having me and for that really generous introduction. Absolutely. I, I got to be honest with you. I'm a nerd. You know, I, my audience knows this. This is no secret to anybody. <laughs> so I really enjoy everything that I mentioned uh, as it pertains to the ability to appreciate art in museums and galleries in these spaces. I am recently a part of an investment group that has begun investing in art. So I have a real curious interest in these in these things. But the, the social issues that underline the way we engage with art, I think, are really paramount right now, particularly because we are in such a time of, of cultural and social upheaval. Uh, talk with us first of all, let's get some definitions straight. What is a, a curator and how does one become one? What, how did you become you? What, what was your path here? Such a good question. So I'll start with what a curator is. Um, curators can wear many different hats um, and be in many different organizations. So if um, you're in a museum that has a collection, you likely are the curator of a particular collection, which means that you interpret the objects and that means that, you know, those labels you see when you go to the museum that tell you what the object is doing or try to explain what it's what the artist is trying to communicate at that moment in time, often those are written by curators. So the role of the curator is to really care for artists and ideas. And also depending on where you fall within the period of, you know, the history of art, which is, I mean, it's even just saying the history of art, it's, it's we would need to unpack that for hours because there's many different art histories 
as many different perspectives. Um, so curators, as I mentioned before, care for artists and ideas. Um, I am a contemporary art curator, so I'm focused on working with living artists. I find it to be incredibly fascinating to be able to work with artists as they're reflecting this contemporary moment. Mm. Uh, and the way that I got here, I've, I've had such an interesting career, very non-traditional um, in the sense of I've worked in many different places. So I worked for, um, I've worked in an artist studio um, as a research fellow right out of graduate school. I worked for the artist, the Astor Gates. And um, I've also, I was the director of a commercial gallery for two years, but the reason why that position was exciting to me was because the gallery primarily represented women and artists of color mm. that were emerging and the opportunity to give emerging artists opportunities is really something that was exciting at that time. I've worked for Prospect New Orleans, which is a citywide art exhibition. I worked at Crystal Bridges, which is a, a major museum in the middle of the country with a dynamic collection. I'm curating a biennial right now with a group of curators and I'm of course senior curator at Public Art Fund. So what I've noticed in this, what some might say roundabout trajectory is that what has been important to me is working very close to the ground with diverse communities and also working very closely with artists. Mm. Um, and I'd be remiss to not mention the, uh, the project that thus far I think has been the most important work of my career, which was to work with um, the community in Louisville and uh, Brianna Taylor's mother to think of Palmer to curate the exhibition that Amy, uh, around the portrait that Amy Sherrill painted of Brianna Taylor. Mm. You know, when you're talking about, it's one thing to, to be a curator who's looking back and trying to interpret what artists from uh, different times and different eras were thinking, what was their motivation. Mm -hmm. I would imagine as someone who's working with living artists where you can directly engage with them, uh, that's got to be such a value for you. But before we talk about uh, the beauties and the power of contemporary art focus, can you help us unpack also just a bit about what it might be like for someone in your position who is trying to to look back at, at say ancient history or ancient art rather, uh, particularly when you have uh, what some would consider like a clash of cultures, whereas one community's functional uh, materials, functional artifacts become or, or get labeled as art for another community that is not connected to the function that underlined uh, that artifact in the first place. As a, within the curatorial sciences, I hope I didn't just make that word, that phrase up. I, I think that's a phrase. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Allison, but <laughs> within the curatorial spaces, how does someone in your position who is engaged more with a historical look back at art, how do you divine and interpret what was happening? What were the motivations? How do those little blobs of details get written about art from lands that the curator themselves may not be familiar with or may not have been personally connected to either as a function of time or just culture and geography differentiation? This is the question, the question right now. Um, often that label becomes the authoritative voice, right? And in these mm. cases, um, you know, maybe it's not always the authoritative voice. And so that's that's a question in the field right now. And um, it's one that many organizations are taking very seriously. Mm. Um, interpretation is a really, it's a, it's a, it's a, we could do a deep dive because I'm also a nerd, but I'm, it's a, it's like, we could do a deep dive on language and deep dive on how the way that these labels are created and developed either call people into a space or immediately deny their entry, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's 
that's something that um, I feel that every organization, every institution has their own approach. Um, in the past, when I have been working with objects that perhaps are outside of my purview, um, it's always great to have another set of eyes on things, mm. advisor, um, bring in a specialist, you know, someone who is aware of that moment in time, who is specialized in the field to look outside of uh, perhaps a Western art historical narrative. Um, because I'm, what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say, what I'm hearing you say is that without exactly saying it, is that oftentimes these objects that are made within a different cultural context can have challenges when brought into the context that doesn't afford them yes. for interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting conversation right now about Documenta, which is a, it's a biennial that happens in Castle, Germany. And there is a, an object, a, a group of works that were created almost two decades ago that have primarily been shown in South Asia and have not really been shown in you know, the, the European context. Um, that were quite offensive mm. to people there. And um, the organization actually dis dismantled these works and wow. they were taken completely out of context, um, but with a sensitivity to the local exhibition site, the artists and the curators decided to take the work down. Um, but this this happens a lot. It, 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 you should You should look into it. I think it would fascinate you just hearing a little bit about what excites you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, reading about how some countries or, or should I say museums have now, I, I guess, in response to the geopolitical realities of the world, have begun returning some of these items, some of these artifacts out of a recognition that, at least in the, the context specific to those art pieces, I believe Benin features prominently in, in, in some of the, the writings about this topic, out of recognition that, you know, maybe it's also because the Queen just had her jubilee. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's this reckoning right now. <laughs> Real reckoning that perhaps that jubilee was was wrongfully uh, situated, uh, but there's this idea and a concept that, in addition to grappling with the complexity of histories of our differing cultures and societies, there also has to be some sort of recompense. There has to be some sort of making right what we now recognize to have been a wrong. Even though, again, I hear some in my audience saying, "Well, Lori, we always knew those that was theft." Yes, I know, but the rest of the world takes a little while to catch up. Uh, so, so, so when it comes to who gets to own art, who gets to own the benefit of art. If I am uh, a, a colonizing country or if I'm an art curator in a country that has a, colon a colonial power uh, history and I am grappling with the fact that we have artifacts in our museum, in our, in our galleries that we know were wrongfully acquired or that we know do not rightfully belong here. Can you talk with us just a bit about how a curator has to, what are, what are the decisions that go into deciding what to do with art that we now recognize is should not be in our possession? How does that get decided? Who gets to steer those conversations? What role does a curator play in how those conversations play out? Thank you for asking that. You know, it's actually a little bit outside of my purview, but I'm going to say that, you know, repatriation is what you're talking about. And hmm. there are um, committees, there are global committees, um, there are scholars who are very well versed. So I would say to museums that know this, they should bring those scholars in, assess the works. Um, there's something called provenance, which essentially tells the, it's the story of where this artwork has been. Mm. So the first provenance would be the artist's studio where it was made. And then it's who owned it after that. And what's beautiful about being a collector, and I heard you say in the beginning that you're investing in art. And so that also hopefully means you're buying art is that you become part of that provenance. 
Oh, wow. Right. So you become part of the history of this object and the history of essentially, you know, the history of art, which is huh. quite beautiful, which is why more people should collect, acquire. Um, but the provenance typically indicates, and if there's missing pieces, it's quite clear, you know, mm. not necessarily what happened, but that there's more to the story. Um, and repatriation is something that is, is extremely important. Yeah. Um, so many of these objects were looted um, during colonial conquests. Right, right. You know, and, and yes, we, we are buying art. This was a new thing for us. We actually have one of our members is an art uh, gallery owner and we, we invested early in a Genesis Tremaine piece. Really, you know, slow level invest. This is like our first big investment, you know, it was like a you know, small. And then now we're like a couple of years later, well, thank you, Black Jesus. <laughs> in this Genesis Tremaine piece. My husband and I were actually supposed to go buy one for ourselves. We did not, a dear friend of mine did. And she is very, very happy because she literally has college funds um, sitting on her wall right now. Uh, so, so when you think about it, and this is actually something I plan on talking with my audience a lot, the our, the power of investing in art, particularly Black art, um, and, and the way that it isn't just beautiful, but it can be an investment strategy as well. Uh, so now that we've, we've gone through the past a little bit in our mm -hmm. Sankofa approach to this, and now let's bring it up to the present. Uh, you mentioned one of the most powerful uh, works that you had been a part of, and that was this piece dedicated to uh, the memory and the life of Brianna Taylor. Talk with us about your involvement in that project and, and what it meant for you. Yes, this, um, so I, I received an email from the director of the Speed Art Museum basically saying that a few people had recommended me for this project. Mm. And at the time, the idea was to bring the painting itself to Louisville to have it on view with the Speed Museum. And they wanted a curator to interpret it, um, which you know essentially means tell the story about the object, have a label. Um, and I think maybe they knew what they were getting into with me, but maybe not, because I already was thinking this is an exhibition, you know? Wow. Um, what was wonderful was, in the email, the director outlined that they had a series of local community committees of people that I would be interfacing with, that Tamika Palmer was already on board and that contingent to me accepting this would be working very closely with her. Wow. So they, they covered their bases as far as I was concerned because I, I'm not from Louisville. I hadn't actually been to Louisville before then, but um, the project was something that I just poured my life into it became my life for four months. And mm -hmm. uh, I built an exhibition around um, the memory of Brianna as her mom kind of, as her mom saw it. So mm -hmm. I asked her early on, what, what does this exhibition mean for her and her daughter's legacy? And she gave me three very um, grounding and anchoring statements. And Miss mm -hmm. Palmer is very clear. She's super clear on the message. She's super clear on what justice looks like for mm. her family. And from that message, I created, interpreted it and created three sections that looked at kind of the, the, the history of our country, mm. what it means to bear witness and protest over time and how artists have done this. And then artists that are remembering those that have been lost to gun violence and or police brutality. Mm. So, and so, 
as someone who was able to be a part of this project at such a, a, a vulnerable moment, both for Brianna's family and, and really for all of us who then were consumers of the art, what does it mean for you when art and social tragedy uh, and trauma are, are intersected in such a way? How are you able to maintain a balance? Uh, that, that sense of e sort of elusive objectivity, we're told, you know, you're supposed to be objective and not inject yourself into this space. But I find it hard to imagine how one could not inject a piece of themselves into these spaces. What was that like for you balancing that, um, bringing your own personal history to this art, recognizing what this art meant to the nation and to black people within the nation in particular? How did, how did you balance that? I really just decentered myself. I built a committee, a national panel of advisors, and um, the people that were on the panel included Alton Sterling's cousin. Mm. Um, they included other people who had whose families had high-profile cases, Trayvon Martin's cousin. Um, but these people are also friends of mine, friends or colleagues. And um, uh, you know, I when I looked around and started to just think about how I was going to need guidance, it was to your point. It was about making sure that I was not making this exhibition about my place, mm. making it about me because it wasn't about me. So really striking the balance and with intention uh, to strike the balance um, and relying on this network of advisors, relying on the community at the speed, relying on a few key people in the community and then the whole advisory committee that was on the local level and just you know, checks and balances, raising ideas and questions. And, and I also talked very often to the artists that were in the exhibition because, mm. you know, artists help us understand the contemporary moment. Yeah. At some point, all art is contemporary. And, you know, art is one slice of this larger pie of the moment that we're living in. It's, it is part of the, you know, the socio-political climate, um, you know, who is, who's in office. What's the fashion of the times? What's the music mm. we're listening to? What are we eating? Who's the global superpower? You know, what tragedy is happening? This is this is our time. That's what happens in our time, and it becomes history. Um, and art is one part of that. And so, working really closely also with artists and getting their feedback was helpful for me to yeah. their way forward. Yeah, I, I hear, you know, we often are asked, you know, is life imitating art or art imitating life? But what I take from what you just said is that art is really just a function of mirroring what's happening and also a function of creating our social response to what's happening. So maybe it's not in either or, but perhaps a both and, and something in between as well. Uh, you are now working uh, with the Public Art Fund and you have been, they, it was a beautiful announcement that went out uh, just a month or so ago about you joining the organization as the senior curator there. Talk with us about Public Art Fund, what it is and why uh, it's so important to, to have these types of entities and institutions during a time, during times, uh, plural, <laughs> like the ones we're in right now. Yes. That's such a good question. Well, you know, after doing the show at the speed and really thinking about the different barriers to entry that um, are afforded to communities and primarily communities of color, people who don't grow up going to museums or feel like it's a space for them, the opportunity to work in public space removes all those barriers immediately. Mm. There's no admission, you know, you don't have to wait in line, you don't have to figure out where the front door is. Museums are remarkably challenging to walk into. You know, think about ascending the, the staircase. Yes. 
Very intimidating if you feel Very like you don't belong there. Yeah. And what if you have mobility, like a different kind of mobility? How do you get in the building? You know, mm. so public art is in it's in the city. It's accessible. It is uh, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no admission. Um, and so that that is something that I've increasingly moved towards. And um, so the opportunity to think about New York City is a, it's a massive challenge. You know, I just moved here seven weeks ago. Welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been coming here for work for a very long time, but it's completely different to live here. So yeah. I have a lot to learn um, and I look forward to that. But what's exciting is the organization has been around for over four decades. Hmm. And um, it, it there are some really iconic projects. And I'm gonna talk about one. This is, this is how ubiquitous public art fund is. And I had no idea. So I'm in East Harlem and I'm a few blocks away from Thomas Jefferson Park. Mm. And I have a wonderful track and you can walk the East River when you walk through the park. And the other day I was walking through the park and saw this massive sculpture in the center of it. And I'm working with the team to assess, you know, where, where is public art in the city? What is the organization's impact? How can we have a greater impact? How do we do this? And so we're just at the beginning stages of all of that. But at the center of the park is a sculpture by Melvin Edwards that was created three decades ago. And it was a public art fund commission. Wow. And so Melvin Edwards is a leading contemporary artist born in Houston, had a career in New York. And he recently had a, you could maybe call it a, a mini I wouldn't say retrospective, but he had an exhibition of multiple works at City Hall Park that was curated by Dan Palmer, who huh. was formerly with the organization. Um, and so it shows the impacts. I was quite excited to see the, the impact of Public Art Fund, the fact that this sculpture by a very important Black contemporary artist who's late in his career, who grew up in the Fifth Ward, um, is in Thomas Jefferson Park, two blocks away. Wow. So wow. these are, you know, these are exciting things. Yeah. And if I'm an artist right now and I'm thinking, well, I've got art. I need to be in the public sphere. I, I want to I do this. I need someone to look at this. And I want to contribute my art in this way. Are there different pathways that artists take to participate in something like Public Art Fund or as opposed to being in a museum? How do young artists, contemporary artists today connect with someone with your expertise and background so that we can see these matches made in heaven being matched and made in a lot more spaces? Such a good question. I always tell artists, you know, stay networked, ask people for studio visits. And if it's not necessarily the curator you're looking for, ask, ask your colleagues, your friends, invite curators into your space, get out into other artists' studios because then you become part of a network. And once you're part of that network, you know, there's, there's more of an opportunity to invite people into your space who potentially want to work with you. Yeah. So it's, it's about reciprocity, you know, so getting out, going to shows, being a part of the community, um, that is how you get involved. It doesn't happen in a bubble. And I would also say, be patient, be patient because this field is, it's a remarkable field and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'll take Genesis Tremaine investment as a great example. 
Yeah, no, and, and trust me, one day I'll, I'll share with the audience how, how those numbers panned out. Just trust me, honey. It was a damn good investment. It's beat, my st- our stock team is like, I mean, they're amazing, but the art team is really riding high right now because it, I mean, just that one investment from an artist who at the time was, was relatively unknown that, you know, not only does it contribute to her economy, it contributes to our collective economy in a way that I think if more of us were aware of, we would be more active participants. You know, just, you know, as we're coming to an end, today, I just want to ask, you know, we're living in a time right now, Roe has just fallen uh, in a way that really has set up uh, a, a series of questions about the viability of any of the other substantive rights that, that people of color in this society, minorities uh, in this society rely upon. And so we're at a real moment of cultural turmoil, political turmoil, uh, and, and people often feel as though they are reeling from what's happening. And art can, and I think should be, a, 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 a feature of society that enables that empowers us to sort of navigate these feelings of of frustration and social unrest and disquiet. As someone whose life is literally connected to and steeped in uh, the uh, analyzing and and assessing contemporary artworks, what do you hope to see from today's uh, emerging artists that speaks to what's happening in this moment in a way that can perhaps be it can perhaps break the those barriers that sort of exist between art, as you mentioned it, you know, in the Met and in these spaces um, that are sort of very restrictive and can be really much more transformative in a way that personally, I just think we need right now. That's such a question. And, you know, as you asked it, I felt myself breathe in deeply and then really mm. as I'm still processing all of this news. Yeah. It's, it's disheartening to me that policy at a federal level can be so discriminatory. Yeah. Um, and as you know, the conversation started, artists help us understand the contemporary moment. So I hope that artists reflect this time unabashedly. I hope mm. they're not afraid to communicate what they want to communicate. Mm. Um, I also want to say, you know, the Met is actually doing really incredible things yeah. right now. Yeah. Really incredible things. Their their team is really pushing the envelope. Um, so I wanted to say that because I really am respecting the way that they're reinterpreting, um, the histories for this yeah. moment. Uh, it's just hard to get up that staircase. If you've <laughs> got it. We love you, the men. We just need a different ramp situation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Allison, it's been a real pleasure having you here. And I, I've been hoping to really broaden out a conversation about the uses of art beyond just our appreciation of them, but how they're also able to really help drive the needle um, in terms of just how we as a society relate to each other. And I've always been, you know, I, my audience knows this, I'm, I'm a Gen X kid, you know, so came up in the 80s and watching documentaries of civil rights movements and, you know, ending of colonization and thinking, wow, they were so brave. Look at all the things that they overcame. I wonder if we'll ever have any struggles like that. And then literally seeing that I'm raising my children in a world where we have these struggles. But even as I'm thinking about those films uh, and those documentaries, I'm also reminded that quite frankly, the art of the time was so fundamentally part of the struggle of that time. When you think about music, yes, we can go back to Negro spirituals on plantations, but even in a more contemporary way, music, particularly throughout the continent of Africa, freedom songs throughout the, the uh, 
uh, United States um, and the Caribbean, everywhere where we see this Pan-African diaspora, we also see that art is never just on a shelf. It is always utilitarian in some way. It is always designed to help speak to the needs of this moment. And I'm just glad we got people like you entering into these spaces and occupying them um, so that we can expand what it means to have access to these spaces um, in ways that make sense for us. Those of us who are not going to climb those met stairs, even if ability is not one of the barriers to doing so. It is such a pleasure having you here. How can people follow you, connect with you, and connect with the work of public art uh, and, and the institution you're at now, the Public Art Fund? This is something that I think people should know about, not just to enjoy, but to also help support um, in whatever ways that they can. How, how can people connect? That's a great question. Well, publicartfund.org is the website and it's at Public Art Fund Instagram. We currently have a few exhibitions on view. One that I think this audience would be really excited about is called The Black Atlantic. Mm. It's at Brooklyn Bridge Park, co-curated oh. by Dan Palmer and Hugh Hayden, who's also one of the artists in the exhibition. I don't want to give too much away, but I just want to say it's absolutely gorgeous. Again, free of charge. You can walk the piers, see the art, grab some pizza at the restaurant that's there, you know, just get a little exercise in, watch the sunset. Um, but it, the, the concept is really thinking about um, connections to the diaspora mm -hmm. and its literal shore, right? So the Atlantic is uh, such an important and powerful body of water for our history. Yes. And um, the ideas in this exhibition really connect strongly to that. Oh, you just gave me um, some plans for the weekend. So I will have to take a trip down just to see it. Allison, it's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for helping us to unpack this. Y'all, she is Allison Glenn, Senior Curator at uh, Public Art Fund. And we like her. We like what she's doing. And we are supporting and rooting for your success. Thanks for being here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.